0: It's good to see you guys here again today. I love uh, being together as a church. I love being able to serve you. Um, And I think I speak on behalf of the elders to say with much confidence that um, we're just so thankful for you. We're thankful that we get to serve you. We're thankful that we are together and that we get to be here every seven days. And um, what a privilege it is. So today, um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 27. We're working our way through the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis 27 today. Um, one of the things—yeah, so if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, there's some behind the booth, and it'll also be on the screen. Genesis 27, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that's the first book in the Bible. Chapter Chapter 27. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't whitewash or sugarcoat the heroes of the Bible. And I think that's an argument for the, actually the veracity of the Bible, um, the truthfulness of the Bible. See, the, the biggest characters, the pillars of the Bible in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get to see them warts and all. There's no dumbing down. There's no sanitization. I mean, it's just, it's fully disclosed. These people are messed up like we are. Sinners like we are. Have got issues and struggles and failures just like we do. And oftentimes the heroes of the Bible, they're not that heroic. And so you think if, if the whole, this whole Bible thing was all just made up and it's, you know, it's just a big fabrication You would think that if we're trying to conjure up a story about history and the way that history works, we would make the heroes of that story look a little better. But that's just not the case. And I think the Bible is structured like this because the authors of the Bible wanted to show that, well, we're going to have to tell the truth. And so this is what's true. These people, we can't just like sanitize them and make them perfect because it's not really the case. And I think the other point is this. There's only one hero of the Bible. There's only one main character of the Bible, and that's God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we can't um, look to anyone else for our hope other than the main character, other than the hero of the Bible, God himself. And God loves to get glory for himself. He loves to have our attention drawn to him. Why? Is it because he's an egomaniac? No, because he knows that when he gives us his glory and we can see it, like when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're consumed with beauty and you're filled with joy as a result, same experience with God. He's the Grand Canyon. He's the unutterable beauty of transcendence. And so when you get that, man, that that explodes joy out of your heart. So God wants to have the glory for himself because then we get the joy. A lot of us come from families that are a little messed up, maybe a lot messed up. And the family that we're going to see today in Genesis 27, real messed up, real messed up. And I think they would rival any of our stories. So let's look at Genesis 27. Now, before we set the course for Genesis 27 today, we've got to set some context. Okay, so what led up to this? And that's another great thing for us to always be thinking about in our Bibles. You never want to read the Bible out of context. You always wanted to keep the context in mind. So what's the context that's led up to chapter 27? Well, it's what Scott preached on last week, what he preached so well on last week. Let's review that a little bit because it's very important to see this For 27, it makes sense. So flip back a page to chapter 25, starting in verse 19. These are, um, actually, let's not start there. Let's start at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, so let's just review genealogy here so everyone's on the same page. God comes to this guy named Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to make of you a great people, a great nation, and through you the whole world's going to be blessed. And Abraham marries Sarah. Problem, they can't have kids. God provides. They have a kid named Isaac. And Isaac needs a wife. How's that going to happen? Well, God provides him a wife. And he's married to, so Isaac, or sorry, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and they have, like we read here, two kids, two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. All right, so that's where we are, just to be oriented. And I want us to learn a couple things about this context in in chapter 25 that are very important to chapter 27. Number one, we see that Jacob is the chosen one. We learned here that Jacob, even though he's maybe a few minutes or however that works when you give birth to twins, he's a a little younger, all right? So he's younger. But the Bible says here in, in verse 23 at the end, that God said to Rebekah, the older is going to serve the younger, meaning Jacob is going to be the guy, not Esau. Even though Esau was the firstborn, Jacob's the guy. The older will serve the younger, okay? And here's the deal. God doesn't give any explanation on that. It wasn't because they had some amazing star-studded character or because Jacob was perfectly obedient and Esau was a loser, that's not the case at all. We're going to both see that they both, have, they both have loser tendencies. We're going to see that in a second, all right? It's just God's sovereign will. He just said, apart from anything good or bad that they've done, this is Romans chapter 9, I'm picking Jacob. And he doesn't give an explanation. It just is, okay? I wish we had time to unpack this more, but we don't. Um, it's just God's sovereign will. He's going to use Jacob and not Esau to, ch- to build his chosen people that gets fleshed out in the whole Old Testament and culminates in a Messiah in the New Testament. So Jacob's the guy. And you can understand how that would create some conflict, right? Esau is the firstborn is supposed to be the guy, but God has turned the culture on its head and said, nope, Jacob's going to be the guy. I'm going to use the younger. So we got tension there between brothers most likely, right? And then the second thing we see is in verse 28 of chapter 25. What does it say? Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. So Isaac's a manly man, uh, Northwoods kind of guy, loves to hunt, makes some amazing food with all this stuff that he hunts. And Isaac's got a big appetite, so he likes Esau. But what does it say? Rebecca loved Jacob. So we've got some favoritism going on here. How messed up is that? Right? Mom and dad are playing favorites. That never creates healthy family dynamics, does it? So we got a messed up family. I I remember as a kid, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever, thinking that my family was pretty normal, right? And we didn't really have any problems. We just were a normal family. And I would always say, you know, we're kind of like Beaver Cleaver, you know, just everything's perfect, right? You guys know... Are you guys old enough to know Beaver Cleaver? I'm not old enough. I never watched that thing. I just watched the reruns. You know what I mean, though, right? The perfect little 1950s family with everything's all perfect. That's what I thought we were. And, and looking back as an adult, though, now, I, I, I can see that my biological family growing up, we had some deep dysfunctions. We really did. And I think at the time, I didn't have the maturity or the emotional categories to make sense of it. You just think, well, this is just normal, whatever. But we were pretty messed up. Now, I was never abused in any of the typical ways, but we were still a pretty dysfunctional family in a lot of ways in, in reference to communication and conflict and closeness. And, and listen, my parents did the best that they could with what they had. They really did. And, you know, as an adult, you learn more of the story, and that helps put the pieces together. So that's helping me grow in compassion to my biological family that I was raised in. Um, I think if I were honest, I would say I probably still have issues with my dad that never really got resolved because he passed away 10 months ago. And so that's just a hard thing to stomach. Like, this wasn't what it was supposed to be. There wasn't the the deep reconciliation that we would have had. We just did the best with what we had. And that, I I mean, I think if I'm honest, that still kind of gnaws in there at me a little bit. And I'm working through that. But with my, my dad passing away, it really served as a catalytic event for my relationship with my sister and my mom. And we've seen some real steps of grace in our relationship since then. Um, That's just me. You you might have a different story. Similar, more severe, not quite like that. You know, everybody's got messed up family to one degree or another, though. And today, in our text, we get to see that that the Bible knows a lot about that. And Genesis 27 is going to give us a front row seat to the messiness of the family of Isaac, to the sin in the family of Isaac. So let's set the context a little bit here. Isaac is advanced in years, he's probably somewhat debilitated by old age. And he wants to bless his son Esau. So let's take a look here at the first verse of chapter 27. I'm going to do some summarizing, but I just want us to read these first four verses because we're not going to be able to read the whole thing. But we'll get a sense for the whole story. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered him, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay? So Isaac has decided that he wants to give the special kind of deathbed, even though he probably wasn't on his deathbed, he thought he might have been. We learned that Isaac lived a while longer after this. But whatever the case, he wants to give the the deathbed blessing to his son Esau because he thought maybe his time was close. And we don't do formal things like this in our culture, but they did a few millennia ago. This was a big deal. Um, and, and so typically what you would do is you would gather the whole family. And we'll see Jacob actually do this with his 12 sons in a few weeks. But typically you gather the whole family and the, and the father would say a special blessing on all the kids. Well, he doesn't do that. He just singles out Isaac. And that's sin number one. He picks out Isaac, even though God had already said, I'm picking out Jacob. And so that's what's even worse about this story, is Esau is not the guy. Isaac knows that because, you know, it was revealed to Rebekah, and Rebekah would have definitely told her husband Isaac that Jacob's the chosen one and not Esau. But Isaac knows this, and he doesn't care. He's going against blatantly the revealed will of God because Esau was his favorite, right? And so he, in essence, just says, who cares I'm, I'm going to prefer Esau, so Esau is going to get my special blessing. That's what's going on here. And in addition to that, here's what makes it even worse. Like we learned last week, Isaac's preferred son, Esau, he sold his birthright to Jacob. If you were here last week, you remember Scott talking about that. He was all hungry from being out on a hunting trip. Comes back in and says, if you don't give me some of this food, Jacob, I'm going to die. And Jacob, he's kind of weaselly. He's like, well, here's what we'll do. We'll negotiate this. Um, you can have some of my food if you sell me your birthright. Birthright was a big deal in this culture. That means you got the lion's share of the family inheritance. And so Esau was dumb enough to just fulfill his fleshly passions of just, man, I just need some food for, to, to sell his birthright to weaselly Jacob, Right? And so Jacob's going to get that. Now, think with me again how messy this family is in light of these facts. Just think about the marriage dynamic between Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac's got his favorite son, Esau, and he acted in complete stupidity selling his birthright. And now Isaac, as, as a result of Esau's decision, Isaac has to give all of that inheritance to Jacob. But Jacob's not Isaac's favorite. So that's going to create some tension, right? But to add to the tension, your wife, Rebecca, does prefer Jacob, right? And so you got all this favoritism flying around. You can imagine how that would create crazy tension in your marriage. And so the husband and wife are not on the same page with the boys. The boys are definitely not on the same page with each other. And they're not on the same page with their father or their mother. Everything's dysfunctional and messed up, all right? That's where we are here in this situation. All right, so the drama continues. Isaac states he just, just wants to bless Esau. That's verses 1 through 4. Now, they're probably living in tents, and so it's easy to overhear things. So Rebecca overhears this conversation that Isaac has with Esau about this blessing and wanting to leave Jacob out of it. And so Rebecca overhears this, and she cooks up a plan, and that pun is very much intended. Nobody with me? You're going to see in a second. Uh, They're going to do some cooking. You know why? Because they they got to do some trickery here. They got to fool Isaac. And here's what she does. She tells Jacob to go get some animals and prepare them and pretend like he just went hunting. Okay? And she's going to fix a meal just like her husband Isaac likes it. She's going to do some cooking. And they're going to serve that food to Isaac, pretending, Jacob's going to pretend, that he's Esau. Well, Jacob's like, wait a second. How's this going to work out? Because I don't look anything like my brother. He's this hairy dude, and I'm not. And, and he's this wild man, and I'm not. And dad's going to know. And so Rebecca's like, well, here's what we should do. Go slay some goats, and we're going to make you a goat costume. All right? And we're going to put all this fur on you, and you're going to walk in. Can you imagine how silly this was? You're going to walk in there with this food, and, and this goat costume. And, and you know what? Here's what Rebecca says. If it doesn't go well, I'll take the curse on myself. Very odd that she would even say that. Like, how would that even go down? But she's like, I- I'm all in with you, Jacob. Let's do this. I'll bear the punishment in some sense if this thing goes south. So Jacob goes along with it. And they've got this plan to deceive Isaac. So, Jacob goes into his father, starting in verse um, 18. And this is where the deception gets even gross, more, more gross, more dark, even deeper. Verse 18. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother, brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. So this is where it gets really gross. We got three lies in a row. Look at verse 19. Who are you? I'm Esau, Jacob says. Lie number one. Lie number two, verse 20. How did you get this food so quickly? And and here's where it gets really nasty. He brings God in as his accomplice. God provided. That's why I got this food so quickly. He just provided a deer there, and I shot it and killed it. The Lord was my partner in this deal. Like, that's pretty messed up. And then lie three at uh, verse 24. Are you really my son, Esau? Again, doesn't bend through the pressure. Stone cold, stone faced. Yep, I'm Esau. So we've got deep family favoritism, and now we've got deep family deception. So let's step back from this for a second and just think, what, what's, the, what's the sin under the sin? What's the motivation for this? How, did this? how did they even get to this place where they're willing to favoritism and deception? I think at the end of the day, it's all summed up as a failure to believe God's word, a failure to believe God's revealed word. Isaac didn't give a rip about what God has already said about Jacob. He's like, I don't care. I don't care about your word, God. I'm picking Esau, even though you pick Jacob. And then Rebecca and Jacob, they they knew the promise that the the blessing was going to flow through Jacob. But since Isaac's over here wanting to to bless Esau, they're like, well, we better take matters into our own hands. We we can't trust God that he'll work this out because he said he would. We need to expedite the process. We need to handle this on our own. They don't believe God's word, that he'll take care of it. So all of this is ultimately a failure to believe God's word. We're going to come back to that theme, so keep that in mind. Let's keep going. So the crooked plan succeeds, and Isaac thinks he's blessing Esau, which is, sh- this is the irony, he thinks he's blessing Esau, which he shouldn't have been doing in the first place, but he's really blessing Jacob, right? Isn't that bizarre? So right after all this deception goes down, right on the heels of Jacob and Rebecca taken off, Esau shows up. And as you can imagine, he's not... Please, verse thirty three. Then Isaac trembled violently when he discovered, you know, all that had gone down here, and realized what had happened. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. So you got some violent reactions here. Isaac, verse 33, trembles violently. I think the weight of his sin came crashing down on him. He realized what he'd done and also that his family so messed up that they deceived him. And he didn't get to bless who he wanted. And then Esau is rocked to the core and he also has a violent reaction. It says a little later that he wept over this. This is a big deal. So what are we left with? What are we left with? We're left with carnage in this family. First of all, you've got Esau who with no blessing, no promise, he's got no inheritance and no blessing, so he's destitute and he's bloodthirsty. Later in the text it says that he wants to he has a plan to kill Jacob. So Esau's destitute and bloodthirsty. And if he succeeds in killing Jacob, what happens to the covenant of God? What happens to the plan of God? Because Jacob's the guy. Second, Jacob's forced to flee. Jacob is exiled. That's the end of chapter 27. We learn that Rebekah learns of this plot on Esau's part to want to kill Jacob. And she's like, Jacob, you got to get out of here. So she sends him off to her, her brother Laban, 500 miles away. And then thirdly, Rebecca loses her favorite son because we learn from the Bible that she never saw him again. He was supposed to just be gone a little while. Maybe Esau's going to cool down after a little bit. It took 20 years. Jacob was gone for 20 years. So you might be tempted, and I was tempted to think you know, early on um, as I started reading the Bible and knew a lot of these stories that This deception was all part of God's plan, and he didn't really care. Well, he cared. Like, there's serious consequences here. Serious consequences. God did not approve of their sin. That's clear. And there's no real happy happy ending to chapter 27. Chapter 27 ends, and the family's just a disaster. Esau wants to kill. Jacob's on the run. Rebecca's grieved because she doesn't have her favorite son anymore. But thankfully, The Bible doesn't end at chapter 27. And there's a little light at the end of the tunnel of chapter 27 in the beginning of chapter 28. So let's just see this. We see that Isaac, I think he comes a little full circle here. He realized what he'd done, and he decides to go along with God's plan. So chapter 28, starting in verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob, And blessed him like an official blessing, like the kind of blessing that God would have wanted. Jump down to verse 3 and see if you can recognize all of the themes that we've already learned about in the book of Genesis leading up to this point. Here's what he says to Jacob God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Does that sound familiar? That you may become a company of peoples, a great people. Does that sound familiar? May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring after you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abram. So what's the, what's the blessing that was promised to Abraham, passed down through Isaac and now Jacob? That God's going to use this family to create a people, a covenant people for himself, with his presence, always with them, in their place, They're going to have a place to dwell and they're going to have a proactive mission to be a light to show the glory and the greatness of Yahweh to the whole rest of the world. That was the mission of God's people in the Old Testament. And so the blessing of God in spite of their sin rolls on. That's part of the good news this morning. God's plan comes to pass. We see that here at the beginning of chapter 28. And take note. That doesn't mean that the sin gets swept under the rug or that it's void of consequences. There are some massive consequences as we've seen. And we're going to see that fleshed out in Jacob's life in the next few weeks as we come upon that narrative. So the blessing of God, in spite of their sin, gets passed on. It keeps rolling. It keeps moving God will never be thwarted by sin on the part of his people. So let me close with two questions as we wrap up here for our application. See if we imply chapter 27 to our lives. Let me, let me ask this. Number one, does this mean that we should dive headfirst into sin, knowing that God's plan can't be thwarted and he always makes it work out in the end? Is that what we should think? No, that's right. We shouldn't. That's foolishness. That's absolute foolishness. If we embrace sin and don't fight it, the first thing that might mean is that you're not a Christian at all. Christians are not perfect. That's never been the message. It's not what the Bible says. But Christians do have at least a desire for repentance when they do sin. And if there's no repentance in your life whatsoever— and you're probably not a Christian since people who don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't really care when they sin. And it's, what's the big deal if I break God's law, if I break God's word? Who cares? But if you see your sin and how you've deviated from what God has revealed in his word, and if there's even a hint of repentance, God will still have you. He doesn't turn his back on you. You can return to him, listen to him, enjoy him. You don't have to play around like David said in the the mud pies in a slum while while the holiday at the sea is promised. You don't have to pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin. But but be warned. Take heed before you think that this account somehow glorifies sin. It doesn't. God will allow, and he did allow them to reap what they were sown. His mission continues. But again, that's not the void of consequences. That's not the void of pain and suffering. It didn't have to go down like that in the life of Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. It just harmed them, and and that same perspective would just harm us if we think, man, I'll just go ahead and dive into sin because God will work it all out. I can't get get in the way of his mission. Well, that's true, but the process may be very uncomfortable for you. And we don't want that for us. Second question Does this mean that God will give up on me when I sin? Here's the deal today can be the day of repentance for anyone, anyone. And that's the free offer of the gospel. Here's the deal there's no going back in our lives, we know that intuitively. You can't re-wi- re- re-wi- rewrite the past like many of us would like to. But we live in the present moving into the future. And if you're willing to go forward with Jesus as your ultimate treasure and trust, you can know that things will work out in the end. It may not happen overnight, but it will all work out. He promises that, to work all things for your good. He promises to be with us and never to forsake us if we're willing to come to him. He promises to provide all that we need when we trust him and don't seek to take matters into our own hands like Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau did. So again, God's going to accomplish his mission through us no matter what. Now the question for us, like it was for This family of four in our text, it's like, are we going to do that the hard way or the easy way? Right? They picked the hard way. And it had big consequences. But the blessing of God, the mission of God, the plan of God continued. But the question for us is, how would we like to experience the promises of God in our lives? The mission of God coming to pass in our lives? We can do it the hard way, we can do it the easy way. Let me give you an example. As a church, stemming from God's word, from cover to cover, there's a desire for God to be glorified among all peoples of the world. Okay? So when we say we're all about neighbors and nations at the vine, we have a heart for the nations. That those that have no access to the gospel would have access. So we gotta send, people have to go, we have to all be a part of sending. All right, so how's that going to happen? Well, we don't have a promise of like a family line in the same way that Isaac and Rebecca did, but we still have promises that we trust by faith, okay? So what's one of the promises in reference to this promise that God's going to reach the nations? Well, it's found in this text in Matthew 9. So this is is his promise for us as we desire to see the nations reached. He said to his disciples, Jesus did, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore... Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the promise is that if we pray, God will respond. He will send if we pray. Now, there's other things that we do, but this is, it's never less than this. God says, pray and I will send. I want you to pray and I will send. All right? Now, we could be like Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, though, and go, well, that's kind of dumb. Prayer is kind of boring. I don't want to expedite the process, take matters in my own hands. You know, like for me, it could look something silly like this. Um, I don't want to believe that because that's boring and that requires faith. I know what I'll do. I'll try to manipulate all the people of the vine. And I'll just get real angry and try to like, scare them into going or I'll get real passive aggressive and like hold grudges and have pity parties and maybe that will manipulate people into going or I could like try to guilt people into like having a heart for the nations right and those are not God's ways this is God's way based on his promise what I just rattled off those are human ways those are manipulative ways and it would demonstrate that I don't trust this promise very much just like Isaac and Rebecca. He says to, to, to pray, I say, Nope, no thanks. I got this, and I don't believe that your way is better. Now, again, take note. If I did that horrible backwards approach, the sinful approach, and forsake these promises, God's still going to get done what He is going to get done. Why? Because we have the book of Revelation in our Bible. And what does it say? It shows us that our worldview is teleological. Now, what does that mean? It means there's an end point. History is coming to a culmination. And what does that culmination say? It says that there's going to be every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group worshiping the Lamb of God for all eternity, for His glory and our joy. That's where this whole deal is heading. And nothing's going to stop it. Nothing's going to shut it down. That's God's promise to His people, clearly in His word. And my lunacy or foolishness will never thwart that. But if I choose to go contrary to God's promises and not believe them and do things my own way, that's still going to have consequences for my life. Like, if I kept up that kind of behavior, you guys might not want me as a pastor around here anymore. I get fired. And that's got implications for my family. Right? And, and it just creates a big mess. So God's plan will never be thwarted. But it, do I want to do it the hard way, or do I want to do it the, the easier way? Now, again, qualification. Praying is never easy, right? But I don't want to go the sinful route. I want to go God's route. Never, ever think that because God is sovereign and promises to accomplish his mission, that that somehow is a license to embrace sin. God is never hamstrung by our sin. We might be hamstrung by our sin, though. So you don't want to play with fire. It's just a matter of time before something really harmful comes about, like we see in Genesis 27. We don't want to go that route. So let me ask you this. Where is ground zero for this in your life right now? Where's ground zero for these themes in your life right now? Where are you tempted to... To be like Genesis 27 and to go, promises God, no thanks, I'm going to do this my own way. Where are you tempted to not believe God's word? And would rather just take things in your own hands, expedite the process a little bit. Where is that? Well, maybe for some of us, a great starting point might just be saturating ourselves in Scripture. Why would I say that? Because the Scripture outlines the promises of God over and over again. So if you don't know what those promises are, you're going to have a hard time walking in faith and seeing those come about in your life. So maybe we just need to start saturating our minds more with the promises of God so that we can head towards them. Maybe that's just a starting point for some of us. Some of you in the room, you, you are very familiar with the promises of God revealed in His Word. And what what's one of those that you need to cherish today that's ground zero in your life? For example, Matthew chapter 6. God promises to provide materially for us what we need. How about the promise that he promises to never leave us or forsake us? Isaiah 41.10, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What about... The Romans 8.28 promise that no matter what comes up in your life, he's going to work it together for your good. How about that one? What about the promise that his mission is going to be accomplished in the world? His church will triumph even in the end, even if all seems lost. I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What about the promise that you've got an eternal inheritance, that, that if your whole life falls apart, Nothing can touch that eternal inheritance that is secured for you by Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter one. What about the promise that if you're persecuted for your faith, even martyred, it will result in eternal blessing long-term, in the long run? That's that's Matthew chapter five, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you if they persecute you. What is it for you? Where are you tempted to forsake God's promise and manage the situation yourself. Like, God, I don't know if I have a true inheritance, so I better just store up all these treasures, and man, I'm really, like, hoping in that trust fund. God says, no, you got got an eternal inheritance. I've told you so in Ephesians chapter 1. Go home and read it. Meditate on it. What promise of God do you need to remind yourself of and believe today so that we don't have to go the way of Genesis 27? Let me close with this. Let this be a huge comfort for you. You may look at your past and think, man, I've blown it so many times, just like chapter 27 of Genesis. And I've blown it in similar ways, big or small. But God never gives up on the repentant heart. God never gives up on the repentant heart. And your day of restoration can always be the present moving into the future. And when we fail, this gospel that we believe picks us up again, it dusts us off, it reminds us that sin is not who we are. Who we are is children of the King. So this empowers us then to, to step into repentance. And to be fully disclosed about our sins. Because I don't have anything to hide. I'm secure. And I can face it honestly. Because Jesus says he can bear it. And his church says we can bear it together. Because Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is alive in all of us. And this gospel news empowers us to return again and again to Jesus as our treasure and our trust. No matter how you've blown it whether it's been like Isaac or Rebecca or in some other way. And then we move forward, start present, moving into the future. We move forward with massive confidence in his promises, in his word. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us be this kind of people, be this kind of a church? Um, We can do nothing apart from you, so we plead for your Holy Spirit to solidify these truths in our hearts and minds.